Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. This is our 197th episode, and it continues presenting chapters from the book No Bosses. This time, the chapter discusses winning a new economy. It starts, like all other chapters, with two quotations. The first is from Charles Dickens, and it says, Consider nothing impossible, then treat possibilities as probabilities. And second, we have Bob Dylan. Well, the fishes will laugh as they swim out of our path, and the seagulls, they'll be smiling, and the rocks on the sand will proudly stand the hour that the ship comes in. And the words that are used for to get the ship confused will not be understood as they're spoken, for the chains of the sea will have busted in the night and will be buried at the bottom of the ocean. And so we begin. Is proposing a new economy an academic exercise, or can our proposed vision inspire, orient, and inform current activism? Can we in time make participatory economics no longer a vision, but a new reality? These two questions highlight strategy, and in this next-to-last chapter, we convey, as an episode, we can at least offer a few thoughts. So first, can our proposed vision matter for tasks that we undertake now? Social change activists often debate reform versus revolution. Work in a limited present, but seek a liberated future. Today, modest changes. Someday, full transformation. But how do we conduct activism for limited gains today, with the personality and means that we have immediately available, and yet do so in ways that lead toward a liberated future tomorrow? An answer arises quite naturally from advocating participatory economics. We can seek reforms, but reject reformism. We can fight for change now, but galvanize support to win greater change later. We can acknowledge and work in light of present limitations, but simultaneously chart a trajectory to where we wish to go. We want participatory economics beyond capitalism. We want feminism beyond patriarchy. We want participatory polity beyond authoritarianism. We want intercommunalism beyond racism. We want ecological sustainability and internationalism beyond suicidal nightmare. We want to win limited gains now. We want to develop steadily more comprehension of, desire for, commitment toward, and means suited to winning greater gains later. The problem is that our self-evident stance leaves us having to navigate between a rock and a hard place. The rock is reformism. If our words and actions don't challenge the permanence of basic institutions, our words and actions will enforce their permanence. If we tilt toward reformism, our aims will tilt toward suicidal compromise or sellout. The hard place is delusion. I remember how the chant, we want the world and we want it now, used to bounce off surrounding skyscraper facades many decades ago. It lifted us. It also made us think reforms were for cowards and sellouts. If we tilt toward ultra-leftism, our prospects will tilt toward holier-than-thou posturing. Too much emphasis on respecting our limited present will preclude escaping our limited present. We must be bold. Too much emphasis on attaining our desired future will preclude gaining a foothold to get moving at all. We must be practical. The solution. Take manageable, immediate steps 
but conceive and implement those steps in a trajectory conceived to reach our desired future. Suppose we seek to increase the minimum wage. We say we want, nay, we deserve $15 an hour. We speak, write, chant, and focus unswervingly on the new minimum wage. We create ties, connections, and means to exercise pressure to raise sufficient costs and fears for elites that they relent rather than risk greater losses. We mobilize, they buckle, good. We win $15 an hour as a new minimum wage. But we win without any notion that we should persist after we win. We don't raise the long-term vision. We win, but we don't connect our campaign to other aspects of a full program. We win, and we go home. We win, and our words and acts have actually ratified the idea not just that many should have a still ridiculously low minimum income, but that there should be a minimum income at all. A second way to approach the same situation is to not fight for such a demand at all. We claim that such a demand will ratify the powers that be. We say it will fail to seek a new world. It will be co-opted. We will be co-opted. So we take to the streets, courageous and committed, and we demand the world now. We look good. We sound good, we are full throttle, we learn nothing lasting, we build nothing lasting, we win nothing lasting. We need a third approach, different than reformism, but also different than entirely abstaining from the minimum wage campaign. So we seek the $15 an hour wage. We simultaneously convey a larger conception of what is a just, worthy, and warranted income consistent with our ultimate aims. For example, that people should receive income for how long they work, for how hard they work, and for the onerousness of the conditions under which they work, but not for property, power, or even output. Our proposed vision informs our chosen words and deeds. We mobilize, but more deeply, we organize. In this third approach, we seek $15 an hour as a worthy advance. We also seek it as a step toward fully equitable remuneration. We build ties, connections, and means to exercise pressure that can win now. We also foreshadow, prepare for, and facilitate winning more later. These three contrasting approaches exist for almost any campaign one might initiate. We can demand gains, talk entirely about their immediate benefits, and go home and celebrate their attainment, which tilts toward minimalist reformism. We can forgo even seeking immediate limited gains on grounds they aren't all we want, which tilts toward maximalist ultra-leftism. Or we can seek gains to attain and celebrate very meaningful advances now, but at the same time prepare to seek much more and advance much further later. It turns out that beyond fostering hope and allowing a positive tone, our proposed vision has immediate worth precisely to the extent that it inspires, orients, and informs this third immediate and long-term approach, whether regarding property, decision-making, jobs, income, or allocation. Consider a related situation that is less well-discussed than the need to avoid reformism and to avoid ultra-leftism, but for which pretty much the same type of thinking, albeit in a more contextually specific condition, applies. Imagine trying to set up a new institution or movement organization meant to convey the values of a desired future while it serves various purposes and needs in the present. A new but closely related choice between a rock and a hard place arises. 
On the one hand, we would want our new project to work well in the present, with current people, tools, and sources of support. On the other hand, we would want our new project to embody new values, aims, and structures, and even to have new features consistent with and able to melt into a better future. Too much attention to fitting the constraints of present circumstances, and we might build a lasting project which would, however, so lose touch with its ultimate goal that the benefits of its successful establishment would be undercut by its failure to sufficiently plant the seeds of the future and the present. Too much fealty to the ideal goal, and we might be true to our desires, but not progress or perhaps not even survive in existing circumstances. By way of an example, consider a hypothetical large-scale media project. Suppose the stated aim is, one, to provide needed news and analysis, two, to develop new institutional relations able to define and sustain a new kind of journalism. On both counts, such a project would hopefully seek to plant the seeds of the future in the present. It would hopefully try to enhance the amount and quality of needed news by virtue of providing a more amenable venue for it. How might those initially involved in such a project proceed? First, they would have to employ people who are used to working in and have various habits and expectations molded in the present. Likewise, they would have to pay bills. For example, those involved would need income for their laborers, and other expenses would also need to be met, such as rent, equipment, fees for services, research costs, and so on. Questions would arise. Where should funds come from? How should relations among people involved in the project be structured? What division of labor and what mode of making decisions should be used? Likewise, how would the new institution interface with already existing alternative media organizations, or with its own audience, or with other institutions such as movements and the government? For each choice, the general quandary would be how does one navigate between 1. the need to establish the institution in the present, with all the present's constraints, and to keep it functioning at a sufficient scale to accomplish more than the associated writers and other workers would accomplish if they were dispersed among other existing mainstream and alternative institutions, such as those they already had jobs at before embarking on the new project. And two, the need to have the new project take shape and operate consistently with its longer-term aims, rather than the project persisting but losing its identity, and thus its merit in the process of persisting. This conundrum should be very familiar to anyone who has created new institutions and or worked at or interacted with them. It defines many hard choices whose resolutions depend greatly on views of what the implications of those possible choices are likely to be. So take, for example, starting The Intercept or Telesaur English, each not overly long ago or, for that matter, starting Z Communications years earlier, and much more recently starting Revolution Z that you're listening to, or, most important to going forward, starting new efforts. A first decision that would arise, for example, is should we take advertisements? The argument for doing so is simple. We need funds with which to pay bills. The argument against doing so depends on how we see the situation. We might feel that ads are bad only because they have bad content. In that case, we might think we shouldn't advertise cigarettes, but it would be fine to advertise good books or even just books generally. To pay bills, we should advertise what is not immediately horrible in its specific content 
and what won't corrupt our thinking and lead via a slippery slope to violating our values. A different analysis might say advertisements are intrinsically bad. They sell the attention of our users to corporations. Our audience becomes our product. Our content becomes a mere means of attracting that audience. And before long, we seek to attract not just any audience, but an audience with means to buy the commodities advertised. The ads we choose may for a time seek to sell only nice items, but we are really selling our audience to the corporations who buy our ad space, and in so doing, we compromise our whole media project. As an added debit, to advertise ratifies the practice of deception. Such a discussion always occurs in some context. For example, should we employ other means to accrue funds? We might try to raise donations from users, but that entails that we repeatedly ask for them, which can undercut outreach and degrade those who are asking and those who are asked. It can make it seem we care most or even only about money. On the other hand, if we can keep those ill effects to a minimum, to seek user donations might allow self-sufficiency while it raises pressure on our media project to meet audience needs rather than to sell audience attention to companies. But what if our audience can't or won't donate sufficiently? What about taking funds from large money donors, whether foundations or individuals? On the plus side, this can generate large chunks of cash, facilitating many useful endeavors. On the downside, this can generate dependence on sources, who may in time impose implicit or explicit constraints on content. They tell you your values are nice. Here is a big donation. We take it. We become dependent on that level of help. They then add, don't go too far or you will lose our support. We can't afford to lose it. The threat they raise need not be explicit to do major damage. Consider a still more complex issue. We wish to create a media project, a political organization, or whatever. How will it make decisions? How will we organize our work? Analogous calculations arise. As initiators, we will need to make decisions and organize the tasks composing our work. Any organization has to do both, of course. But we may wonder, should we do it in ways that are familiar from current society and that match people's prior experiences and expectations? Or should we do it in new ways that attempt to move toward what we prefer for a new society, but that differ greatly from people's prior experiences and expectations? The former approach is easier. We know that in at least some respects it works. It will be easier to get funding for the familiar. It will better fit people's prior habits. A hierarchical approach to decisions, for example, will get decisions made. A corporate division of labor in which some folks monopolize empowering tasks while others do purely rote tasks will get considerable work done. Donors will understand those choices. So will potential employees. Some may even prefer them. In contrast, to employ self-managed decision-making that apportions to all workers a say proportionate to their involvement will diverge from people's prior experiences. It will require training and experiment. It will alienate potential large donors. As compared to what people are used to, it will seek unexpected and unfamiliar participation from some folks and strip considerable authority from others. Similarly, arranging tasks into jobs so that everyone does a comparable balance of empowering and therefore also of disempowering work will require a kind of involvement 
that people are not used to, and which many may initially find quite foreign, and some may consider burdensome, and some may consider burdensome. The argument for the plant the seeds of the future in the present option of self-management and a new division of labor is twofold. First, the choice won't ratify existing relations that our long-term aims should want to transcend. Second, while the choice will risk new kinds of problems due to clashing with old habits and expectations and horrifying big donors, it will also allow new kinds of benefits due to facilitating diverse opinions and better developing and utilizing all participants' talents. Third, there would be positive effects on immediate institutions or movement organizations, products, and outreach. Consider an analogy. Why should a media institution reject sexist or racist structures in its own organization? First, we easily agree, to do so will not ratify, much less enforce, what needs to be rejected. Second, we also agree, doing so will allow new kinds of benefits, such as contributions from folks who would otherwise be alienated and diminished. And third, almost as obviously, if a media institution or movement organizing project is internally racist or sexist, over time its ability to address issues of race and gender outside itself will steadily deteriorate. It will become steadily harder to even perceive, much less critique, those flaws outside of one's work when one is daily enacting and abiding those flaws inside one's work. Incorporate racist and sexist features, rationalize doing so, lose capacity to perceive, much less oppose racism and sexism. The analogy is that the same insights hold for having internal authoritarian decision-making or corporate divisions of labor. Incorporate authoritarian and corporatist features, rationalize doing so, lose capacity to perceive, much less oppose, authoritarianism and classism in broader society. The rationales that justify our internal choices will infect our values and perceptions, and in turn will inhibit and even obliterate prospects for media coverage or organizing work to fully properly address power and class. I interject here. When I say to fully properly address power and class, some may listen and wonder. Mm, progressive institutions, progressive media institutions, progressive organizations and movements, they all address class, they all address ownership, they all address uh, the people at the top who are called capitalists, and that's true. And it's also true that inside their organizations, they don't have owners, they don't have they don't replicate, they don't mimic that aspect of society. They reject ownership internally as well as externally. But what about the position of the coordinator class that we have discussed in developing our, our vision of participatory economics? How many progressive and left media organizations focus effectively on the division of labor, on the division of employees into those who are empowered and those who are not empowered. For that matter, how many movements do that? And is that, in fact, in part, a result of the fact that inside those organizations and movements, that dynamic is pretty closely replicated? That's what the claim is here. The chapter continues. 
So we deduce that for a media experiment or a movement organization, the issues we are considering become how do we raise finances, make decisions, and define jobs and rules for work? And what is at stake is twofold. Will editorial content or outreach organizing be compromised? Will the institution structure itself not only survive, but also serve as a positive model? It can be hard to judge choices people make about such matters from outside the constraints and pressures they face. But it ought to be possible to arrive at broad guidelines for such judgment. Win reforms, but avoid reformism. Win reforms that benefit folks now, move toward ultimate goals, and also prepare and inspire folks to seek further changes later. Do the same regarding not just demands and how we fight to win them, but also when constructing our own organizing projects, organizations, movements, and new ways of conducting daily life. Live, learn, love, and otherwise sustain and enrich all lives today while seeking a better world for tomorrow. But we come to a second big question. Can we in fact win a new economy, a new society, and a new world? The only definitive answer to this question will be to do so. Final proof can only emerge from practice. But since we must win, because the cost of not winning is simply too much to even contemplate, there is a sense in which the question is moot. We try. We don't wait on proof that action will succeed. And in fact, action will often seem to fail. But then we try again until final success. But is this only a recurring act of faith? Is it only a wild recurring leap over, around, and through doubt? And is this leap based only on fear of failure and rejection of failure and not on a real sense of possibility of success? It could be thus. Indeed, I think for transformative energies, it often has been thus. But I don't think it should be thus for two reasons. First, it is too much to ask. Without a sense of direction toward victory, too many people will balk at the outset or fall away in time. A big dose of reasoned commitment, and not just courageous commitment, will greatly strengthen recruiting and member sustainability. Second, a reasoned commitment based on a formulated path forward, with its features conceived and repeatedly tested, with its methods refined and repeatedly improved, with its structures implemented and repeatedly enhanced, is a commitment that has direction and is strategic, creative and intelligent, and not only courageous. For these reasons, an effective project for a better society will need a compelling vision of key features of the sought economy, polity, kinship, culture, ecology, and international relations. It will also need a conception of how to win that we continually update from our growing experience, and that perpetually gives us not just courage, but also reason to believe in and guidance to attain our own futures. A clarification may be needed. To win a new world does not occur in a flash. There will not be a day we are living in an old world, and the next day we are living in a sought new world. Even just considering economy, even just considering a new division of labor and a new allocation system, these changes will come unequally and will take time. Full balanced jobs won't appear in a flash in all firms at once. The dwindling old corporate division of labor, under siege and saddled by restraints and mitigating structures, will for a time exist alongside steadily maturing new balanced job complexes. 
And the same will hold for participatory planning and markets. For some time, participatory planning will persistently develop and spread while markets are forcefully restrained and replaced. We call this period of militant restraint of the old with vigorous construction of the new transition. What is most critical about participatory economic transition is that with the elimination of private ownership and during the forging of new relations, the corporate division of labor and markets are not considered solutions, but are deemed problems to overcome. They are targets of struggle. They are targets for elimination. Without that guiding agenda, the transformation of economy would preserve and elaborate the coordinator class above workers. It would put a new boss in place of the old boss. It would be coordinatorist. But deeming the corporate division of labor and markets as residual targets to fully replace, participatory economic transition will persist until it attains classlessness. In short, we need to understand and share where we are now and what structures and obstacles around us, as well as in ourselves, enforce current reality. We need to also envision and share the core features of where we want to wind up. We need to forge and reforge, share and reshare, and traverse and retraverse a steadily updated path from what we have to what we want. We repeatedly mobilize larger and larger, steadily more committed, steadily better informed, steadily more effective activism against current relations. We repeatedly organize ever more deeply to plant the seeds of the future in the present and to motivate and empower our means to construct the future itself. The rest of No Bosses offers a conversational afterward, answering some questions readers may wonder about the participatory economic vision, its history, and its prospects, followed by some references that may help with related tasks. In truth, though, I expect the most important references are still to be produced by new voices including hopefully yours. All that said, I offer an afterword upon reading the above. No Bosses is about economic vision. Will that vision gain advocates, spread, and inform activism and organizing? Obstacles are the belief that we can't win, poor representation, poor presentation, inadequate, lack of hope, lack of desire. Part of the obstacle has to do not with the vision itself, but with the process of gaining the new world. And that suggests a task. No Bosses actually leads to another task. Try to put forth a compelling formulation of the process by which a new economy, and for that matter, a new society, including kinship, culture, polity, can be won. Try to develop a path really a set of paths because it's all so contingent, but a set of paths and a set of ideas and a set of, of understanding of concepts and of inclinations that are convincing about the possibility of transitioning to this new economy and the new broader society. That's another task, I guess, for another time. And for now, all that said, this is Michael Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.